So hi, everybody. I'm an anesthesiologist and a pain medicine specialist, so I'll be covering kind of my perspective through the talk today. Uh, briefly, I just have uh, funding from the National Institute on Drug Abuse and no other disclosures. There will be some discussion of off-label drug or product use during my lecture today. Uh, briefly, our objectives are to describe the process of appropriate specialist referral and ongoing care by the primary care provider in the interdisciplinary management of chronic pelvic pain. Uh, we want to differentiate bladder pain syndrome or IC from a myriad of other pelvic pain conditions that can occur in and of themselves or in conjunction, making the clinical picture more challenging and to discuss evidence-based pain management strategies for the treatment of these various conditions from both the perspectives of a pain medicine specialist and a pain psychologist. So let's start with a case. We have a 43-year-old female who has a past medical history of migraines, depression, and GERD. She presents to your office to establish care. You've never seen her before. She also has a long-standing history of pelvic pain, which has significantly worsened over the past year. So she gives you this pain diagram. You can see she's got a little bit of a headache, low back pain, and a focus around her pelvis and primarily that right groin area. So what do we think when we hear the word chronic pelvic pain? It's usually attributed to non-malignant pain in the structures of the pelvis that has been present for at least greater than six months or maybe has a non-acute uh, pain mechanism of shorter duration. It falls into many categories, including urological, gynecological, GI, musculoskeletal, and nervous system causes. It's often an indication for surgery, but unfortunately about 33% of the time these patients go through surgery and still have continued pain and no clear diagnosis for their condition. And on average it usually takes about two to five years for patients to get to a specialist in terms of their referral flow. So one of the goals for my talk today is to encourage primary care doctors to immediately refer these patients uh, to formulate an interdisciplinary plan. In terms of terms, uh, pelvic pain is usually uh, encompassing any type of visceral or somatic pain condition from about the level of T10 dermatome or below. Uh, the pelvic floor referring to the fascial and muscle layers that span the bony outlet of the pelvis. So going back to the case, she has a sharp shooting right groin pain radiating to her genitals and a dull constant aching pain that's most notable in the suprapubic region and she attributes it to bladder pain. She's got some alleviating factors including rest. Her symptoms are partially relieved by urination but she's finding that she's having to go to the bathroom more and more frequently every day. She has several exacerbating factors including exercise and long car rides. So as you can see here, I'm not going to have time to go over all of the differential diagnoses that can be included, but it does uh, make one thing clear, that it does require the work of several different specialists in conjunction with primary care to get a handle on what all is going on when a patient presents with pelvic pain. So going back to our case, the patient had a C-section about 20 years ago, X-LAP with lysis of adhesions about five years ago. She's on a number of pain medications, including an anti-inflammatory, a triptan, an SSRI, Pepsid, and occasional use of tramadol. She's currently separated and going through a divorce. She's not been able to work over the last year due to her pain and functional issues. And she had a previous history of suicidal ideations at age 18 due to a major life event. 
So the patient's asking for a refill of her tramadol and referral to specialists as she's just moved to the area. And how would you proceed? So we could have a whole lecture separately about uh, the use of opioids for chronic non-cancer pain conditions, but you uh, smartly would check with your prescription drug monitoring program to see for how long she's been getting tramadol and from whom, ideally. Um, and also consider specialist referral, and namely maybe your local pain specialist, as well as potentially a psychiatrist or a psychologist. If the person hasn't had regular gynecologic care, definitely referral to a gynecologist would be warranted at this point. So speaking from my pain medicine perspective, we like to think about muscles and nerves and bones. And one of the things that's very important is the sacrococcygeal plexus and its innervation of the pelvis in terms of organs as well as the pelvic floor. Specifically for this patient, one of the commonly injured nerves is the iliohypogastric nerve. One important concept is the concept of viscerosomatic convergence. So when a person has, for example, a chronic ovarian condition, over time, those pain signals can radiate from a visceral to a somatic distribution, and so they can start having pain, for example, radiating into their groin. So even if it's not the primary cause, it may appear that they have some sort of peripheral nerve entrapment when they do not. This specific nerve has a cutaneous branch, a motor branch, uh, to the abdominal wall as well as a sensory branch going into the groin and the pubic symphysis. I would say its sister nerve is the ilioinguinal nerve, uh, a sister nerve because it's hard to differentially blockade these nerves. Um, it enters the inguinal canal about two centimeters medial to the anterior superior iliac spine. It's sensory to the groin, mons, labia, and inner thigh. One of the common modes of entrapment are by the lateral edges of a fan and seal incision. So when those retractors are placed and you pull towards the ASIS, you can get a little bit of injury or irritation of this ilioinguinal nerve. Most likely, this is what the patient is describing with the C-section history even 20 years ago. Another mechanism of injury would be trauma during needle bladder suspension. And here we just have some ultrasound pictures. So we do a lot of ultrasound-guided peripheral nerve injections, as you can see here, um, from proximal to distal, the spreading between the ilioinguinal and the iliohypogastric nerves here. This is your anterior superior iliac spine, and you can see the abdominal muscle layers, namely the transversus abdominis and the uh, internal oblique muscle here. Another nerve that might be involved in the groin region is the genitofemoral nerve, uh, branching from L1-2. So this has two branches, a genital branch, which we are usually trying to target, uh, specifically the skin of the mons and the labia majora. There's also a femoral branch innervating the femoral triangle. So if you palpate somebody's pulse, the skin that's overlying that femoral artery uh, around the groin area is usually going to be innervated by the genitofemoral femoral branch. Uh, it has a really long course over the psoas muscle, and so one of the ways that the genital femoral nerve can get injured is post-appendectomy perineural fibrosis. And this can, again, happen years later, so it's very important to gauge their surgical history as you are um, doing your intake. And you can see here a surgical dissection of the long course of this genitofemoral nerve. 
The pudendal nerve gets a lot of attention, and you may already be familiar with its major branches. This is because it's the main somatic innervation to the pelvic floor. It innervates the outer third of the vagina. It has three main branches, the dorsal nerve to the penis or the clitoris, perineal branch, and an inferior rectal branch. Um, and it is, it is involved in many of the sensory functions and is often a target for our injections as well. Uh, there's many modalities of injury, namely traumatic childbirth, uh, third-degree tears through the perineal body can really injure your pudendal nerve. One specific surgical technique called sacrospinous vaginal vault suspension involves placing the suture about one finger breadth medial to the ischial spine. Well, that's exactly where the course of the pudendal nerve is. So if you have a patient who comes in and says, you know, pre to post-surgery, I had a really a uh, distinct change in the nature of my pain. Perhaps it became a very sharp shooting pain as soon as they woke up after surgery. I would think about different types of peripheral nerve entrapments, pudendal, sciatic, even posterior femoral cutaneous. Another target for pelvic uh, pain conditions is the piriformis muscle. As you can see here, the piriformis is attaching from the lateral aspect of the sacrum and the gluteal surface of the ilium and inserting on the greater trochanter. So it's a main external hip rotator, and if your knee is flexed, it's, it's involved in hip abduction. Uh, piriformis syndrome can manifest many symptoms, namely myofascial pain from the piriformis injury itself or sciatic nerve compression leading to uh, symptoms mimicking uh, sciatica. The mean age is about 38 years old, and there's many uh, potential etiologies, including gluteal trauma, uh, anatomic variants, myofascial trigger points. Something that's really important in terms of piriformis syndrome management would be physical therapy and stretching of the piriformis muscle. One of the things that we can aid in terms of uh, helping along with physical therapy, again, is ultrasound-guided piriformis injections. As you can see here, this is the ischium. The arrows are kind of in the wrong place in the greater trochanter. And you can see this muscle layer here is our piriformis. And you can see the sciatic nerve right underneath. Another nerve that's commonly injured is this tiny lateral femoral cutaneous nerve, which can uh, cause a condition called neuralgia parasthetica. And because this is a purely sensory nerve, a lot of times patients will describe in their uh, upper outer thigh that they'll have some uh, numbness as well as a shooting pain. And so there are more than 30 different reported etiologies of a neuralgia parasthetica, some being post-surgical abdominal scars, uh, iliac bone graft harvesting, other things can be just the weight of uh, pregnancy belly in that area. <clears throat> and as you can see here, another ultrasound-guided technique that we do is a lateral femoral cutaneous nerve block. You can see a tensor fascia lata here, or sartorius muscle here, and it's a very superficial, less than one centimeter deep target usually, even uh, with change in body habitus. <clears throat> so let's go back to our case. She has decreased sensation to cold over the right inguinal ligament and a portion of the upper inner thigh. No tactile allodynia over laparoscopic scars of the fan and steel incision, so it doesn't seem like she has a scar neuroma. She's got deep aching pain with palpation of the suprapubic region and tenderness to intravaginal palpation of pelvic floor muscles with minimal contraction strength. 
So what are the next steps from a pain specialist perspective? Well, what I would think about is an interdisciplinary approach with medications. But the problem with many of our medications is that they can cause some uh, psychiatric mood disturbances and, and namely suicidal ideations. So I would need input from my psychologist colleagues to see if she's in a good place to start any of these medications. In terms of interventions, she'd definitely be a candidate for ileoinguinal or iliohypogastric nerve blocks and referral to a pelvic physical therapist. So let's talk about specific uh, uh, different causes of pelvic pain. So endometriosis affects about 5 to 10% of women of reproductive age. It involves growth of endometrial glands and stroma outside of the uterus. It usually involves severe pelvic pain. Uh, reduced fertility and is a histologic diagnosis. So at some point, your gynecologist would have gotten a slide sample to confirm the presence of endometriosis, whether or not they could see implants. So your typical patient's going to be between ages 25 to 35, never have had a baby, and is involuntarily infertile. In terms of the menstrual-associated pain, it's usually a secondary dysmenorrhea that starts about a couple years after menarche. There are, again, many theories as to what causes endometriosis. Uh, one that's most commonly named is retrograde menstrual flow of um, menstrual products outside of the pelvis. But there are very remote uh, areas that can be involved in terms of endometrial implants. So there are clearly other factors that are likely at play. I talked about some of the associated uh, symptoms of endometriosis, so painful menses, painful intercourse, heavy menstrual bleeding, non-menstrual pelvic pain, which is often occurs over time as a patient gets sensitized to their pain, uh, pain with defecation, pain with urination, and can be very debilitating. So the treatments span uh, many different uh, areas in terms of medications, Anti-inflammatories can be useful. A combined oral contraceptive pill can be very useful after surgery to reduce the rate of endometrioma uh, re-implantation. With uh, more intensive hormonal therapy, you have your GnRH agonists. The issue with these is that they can um, cause symptoms like a, a menopausal symptoms, which may be unpleasant for patients, as well as accelerated bone loss, which might be concern, uh, concerning for some patients. And then you have your progestins. In terms of surgery, definitely for severe endometriosis, surgery would be indicated for surgical removal of those implants. Uh, other techniques that have been described include uh, laparoscopic uterine nerve ablation, uh, but this does not seem to improve pain relief over the long course. One of the things that we can do is basically block the visceral afferent pain signals in terms of a superior hypogastric plexus block. And so this kind of serves to reset the person's pain levels. And over time, we can do these injections maybe once every three to six months. And that can get people either through a flare or get them to a, just an overall lower level of pain. Pelvic congestion syndrome is another potential diagnosis involving enlarged venous complexes of reproductive tissue, kind of like varicose veins, but in your pelvis instead of your legs. There are other proposed etiologies, including orgasmic dysfunction and psychosomatic issues. The hallmark is that these patients have a deep, dull, aching pain in their pelvis that's exacerbated by any kind of increased venous pressure. So heavy lifting, uh, definitely intercourse, 
they tend to have a very deep-seated intercourse-related pain, postcoital aching that's not just like an hour after intercourse, but even hours to days after intercourse, the pain continues, and again, dysmenorrhea. One syndrome that can fall under the category of pelvic congestion syndrome is nutcracker syndrome, which is actually an anatomic compression of your left renal vein between your abdominal aorta and your superior mesenteric artery. So it's always something to consider is to complete your workup with potentially an MRI of the abdomen and pelvis. So pelvic venography is the gold standard for diagnosis, but you would be able to find this condition on an ultrasound of the pelvis or, again, like an MRI of the pelvis. Treatments span hormonal. Physical therapy with uh, manual lymph drainage techniques can be helpful. Ovarian vein ligation or even ovarian or pelvic vein embolization by vascular surgery colleagues can also be helpful for treatment of this syndrome. Vulvodynia is uh, more of a rule-out condition. There are many conditions uh, that can mimic vulvodynia, but the actual definition would be chronic pain or discomfort involving the vulva for more than three months for which there is no other obvious etiology. And patients will often describe itching, burning, steering, uh, stinging, irritation. It may not necessarily present as a, as a pain condition. There's a static lifetime prevalence of 8% up to the age of 70. And in terms of purely provoked vestibulodynia, this is the most common cause of sexual pain in women less than age 30. So it's, it's fairly prevalent. Uh, typically, your vulvodynia patient's gonna be between ages 20 to 40. The typical picture of this patient will be that they had maybe a yeast infection or a urinary tract infection, and this seems to be an initial trigger of inflammation or injury that leads to altered pain processing over time and continued pain. There have been other proposed uh, mechanisms of the uh, creation of vulvodynia. And notably, women with history of anxiety or depression are four times more likely to develop this purely provoked vestibulodynia. So what are the armamentary of treatments we could offer? Biofeedback to try to decrease pelvic floor tone, manual or electrotherapeutic input. There are different topicals, including lidocaine gels or estrogen creams. One of the downsides with the lidocaine gel is that it can actually be a little bit irritating to the mucosal tissue. Uh, I will talk a little bit about uh, tricyclic antidepressants. There's gabapentinoids as well as anti-seizure medications. It's very important over time to get a sense of the patient's sexual functioning, so having uh, input from psychology colleagues is, is very critical in their ongoing management. And then our surgical colleagues have developed some techniques, including vestibuloplasty and vestibulectomy, but it uh, seems like the initial results may be somewhat promising for localized uh, vestibulodynia, but we don't have any kind of long-term data yet. So finally, I want to touch a little bit on urologic pelvic pain, namely interstitial cystitis. You may hear of it called painful bladder syndrome or bladder pain syndrome. So with just a little bit of history, back in 1990, the NIDDK developed very stringent research criteria to diagnose IC. And you can see that they require the presence of these Hunter's lesions as well as none of the uh, exclusion criteria listed below. So it was very onerous to diagnose these patients. 
uh, you can see the Hunter's lesion right here. Uh, but over time and more recently, the AUA has uh, developed guidelines and the description of IC is more of like a chronic pain condition. So they define it as an unpleasant sensation, pain, pressure, or discomfort. And usually patients will have urinary urgency, frequency, or dysuria, and it's perceived to be related to the bladder, associated with lower urinary tract symptoms of more than six weeks duration in the absence of infection or other identifiable causes. In terms of the epidemiology, it is evolving because you can see that the criteria from 1990 to present has varied over time. In general, females are more often affected than males. The average age of presentation is around in the 40s. One of the most notable things with uh, these patients is the activity avoidance. So a lot of times these patients want to stay home, stay close to the restroom because they're going to the bathroom so frequently, maybe even every 10 to 15 minutes, just to try to relieve a little bit of their symptoms. And so this affects shopping, travel, exercise, even sexual relationships. There's more data coming out of the uh, MAP network showing that there's a subset of patients, maybe about 30% of patients, that have a bunch of overlapping pain syndromes, whether it be chronic migraines, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, irritable bowel syndrome. And so the thought is maybe these patients may be more prone to a sensitization of various areas in their body. So the clinical presentation is a lot of these times uh, patients will present with symptoms uh, akin to a UTI. Whether or not they have isolated uh, bacteria in their urine sample, they often get treated with antibiotics for a certain period of time. And, and then, unfortunately, the pain does not disappear, and it has a waxing and waning course over time. Uh, they have a severely decreased quality of life, um, increased anxiety, catastrophizing, ca catastrophizing amongst a number of other things. In terms of etiology, the past several decades were focused on potentially an altered integrity of this glycosaminoglycan layer. So the most inner protective layer of the bladder that prevents um, chemical irritants from reaching the muscle wall. Um, the thought was that that was actually compromised and leading to some sensitization. Although there are a number of other evolving theories because the treatments to target this uh, rebuilding the glycosaminoglycan layer have not necessarily panned out to be uh, very productive. So if we go back to the AUA guidelines, uh, they do mention that pain management should be considered throughout the course of therapy with the goal of maximizing functioning and minimizing pain and side effects, whether or not that involves a referral to a pain specialist. But definitely throughout treatment, urologists are constantly thinking about patient uh, education as well as pain management and self-management uh, strategies. So as a broad overview, patient education and support often involves uh, looking at dietary triggers. Other things are strategies to void by the clock rather than voiding by symptoms. So trying to increase the duration of time between trips to the restroom. Second-line therapies include appropriate physical therapy. So the usual Kegel exercises that are helpful for incontinence are very bad for patients who have painful bladder syndrome because we're trying to do the opposite, which is to stretch their pelvic floor and to um, strengthen and loosen. Uh, other pharmacologic therapies that we'll talk about a little bit more are TCA, such as amitriptyline, uh, antihistamines, such as cimetidine and hydroxyzine, uh, pentosin polysulfate sodium, and uh, intravescal installations. 
you can see the third through sixth line therapies. Uh, one thing that's uh, moved up recently in terms of the guidelines are uh, introducer Botox from a fifth line to a fourth line treatment. So let's talk a little bit about intravesical installations. Uh, DMSO is approved for IC back in 1997. It's purported to be an anti-inflammatory analgesic smooth muscle relaxing agent. It's a bladder catheterization protocol. And most oftentimes, a lot of these patients can experience significant pain and exacerbation of symptoms just because you're manipulating the, the bladder. And so it's important to provide some supportive therapy or potentially anticipate an increase in symptoms if patients are getting uh, vesicle, intravesical therapies. Uh, PPS or Elmeron, this was FDA approved back in 1996 for IC treatment. Again, the long-term results in different trials has been very variable. Um, and so you'll have efficacy maybe 30% of the time. Um, usually it's dosed as 100 milligrams three times a day, an hour to two hours before meals. And the thought was that this, uh, this compound would reach the glycosaminoglycan layer to rebuild it. One of the things that's notable is it's actually a low molecular weight heparin-like compound, so it can actually cause a little bit of bleeding. And if a patient has had an allergy to heparin, has had heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, or an issue with a low molecular weight heparin, this is not a compound, even though it seems to have low risk, this is not a compound you'd want to treat with. Uh, other medications we mentioned were antihistamines, and generally the data is variable on antihistamines as well, but the thought is because they have such low side effects and because certain patients respond, it would be worthwhile to trial. So cimetidine is an H2 antagonist, and you can give it uh, two to three times a day, and it's postulated to um, counteract the mast cell degranulation that leads to inflammation of the bladder. So some of the agents that we use more frequently in the pain clinic would be the tricyclic antidepressants. Uh, most of the studies in terms of painful bladder syndrome have involved amitriptyline. And in this particular study, they looked at 50 subjects that were randomized to either amitriptyline or placebo. And 42% of patients actually experienced a 30% decrease in their IC symptom scores, suggesting that it might be a good drug to use. Uh, in treatment-naive patients, um, overall, they did not find any efficacy for amitriptyline. But what was interesting is when they looked at a subgroup of patients who actually were able to get to 50 milligrams a day, they had a greater response than placebo. And this is actually follows uh, the research in terms of uh, treating pain with TCAs. In general, a dose range of about 40 to 60 milligrams a day would be required to see any kind of symptom relief. And my general advice is to go as slow as possible, so maybe even titrating by 10 milligrams every week, and giving the patients an expectation that they're going to feel some degree of side effects as they titrate up on their medications. Uh, so, it, so it's more to be in it for the long haul rather than trying to get them to a dose quickly. Another medication that can be very helpful is gabapentin. In this study, uh, they did a combined treatment of an NSAID gabapentin and amitriptyline over six months with very significant improvement in VAS scores as well as uh, IC symptom and pain index scores. And I guess the message here would be it often requires more than one uh, pain medication to treat many pain conditions, including uh, IC. 
Two other things you might hear about uh, from your colleagues would be sacral neuromodulation. This is actually FDA approved for incontinence issues and not uh, IC. It involves an implanted lead that lies along the sacral nerve root, usually S3. And so they did do some trials trying to treat patients with IC that didn't really show any efficacy. But it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't necessarily be a bad idea if you have a patient that has incontinence as well as IC to consider a sacral neuromodulation trial. Another modality that's often used by our urology colleagues is posterior tibial nerve stimulation. So the postulation here is that the posterior tibial nerve communicates with the S3 nerve root, and that's how it provides neuromodulation. And it's actually a needle that's assert, inserted at the ankle, at the medial ankle, and it's a protocol of about 30 minutes lasting over 12 weeks. And so there is some efficacy there in terms of um, treating uh, painful bladder syndrome. In terms of what we can do as pain specialists, uh, one other frontier would be neuromodulation, namely spinal cord stimulation. It has not been studied in large trials, but has shown some efficacy in small case series. So I think over time, as our neuromodulation techniques uh, continue to advance, this may be a uh, more fruitful modality. So I went through a whirlwind of uh, conditions, and as you can see, there are a wide range of disorders that can encompass pelvic pain, and oftentimes patients have more than one condition involved at the same time. And it's very important to understand all of the psychosocial factors that are associated with treating these conditions. Um, and with that, I will hand it over to my colleague, Dr. Prasad. Good afternoon. Mike working okay? All right. Good afternoon. My name is Ravi Prasad. I'm a psychologist at Stanford and work in our pain clinic alongside with Jen. And when we crafted this talk, we intentionally uh, spent more time on the medical aspects of pelvic pain, just because, as you can see, there's a significant amount of information related to the medical aspects of pelvic pain. But we knew that the talk wouldn't be complete without looking at the broader context in which pain occurs. And so for the last small portion of this uh, presentation today, I'm going to talk to you about the role of psychology and psychological factors in pelvic pain. So each one of us here today um, is a product of our life experiences. All the different things that we've done over the course of our life have brought us to this very point. Um, the decisions that you make throughout your course of time, attending a party uh, at the last minute, meeting the person who becomes the love of your life, uh, deciding not to go out with friends of a night instead instead of uh, having a good time, the choice of school you go to. All these different decisions that we make over the course of time shape who we are, and that becomes part of our outlook in life. Now, everything that I just mentioned, those three different things are all relatively neutral to positive things, right? But what about negative outcomes or negative experiences? How do negative experiences in our life shape the outcomes that we have over the course of time? Well, this is a question that uh, doctors and Filetti were very curious about. More specifically, they were wanting to know how do adverse life experiences uh, during childhood influence health and behavior outcomes over the course of time? So in a collaboration between the CDC and Kaiser, uh, they had a very ambitious study where they gathered data from over 17,000 individuals between 1995 and 1997. It's just baseline data, and they're continuing to collect data on these individuals over the course of their lives. And they're wanting to develop a better understanding of how uh, the baseline measures that they had, how some of the early life experiences shape health and behavior outcomes. So the authors identified 
nine specific adverse childhood experiences that I'm going to go through. The first is physical and emotional neglect. Physical neglect simply refers to not having the basic physical needs met, not having a roof over your head, not having uh, clothing, food, things along those lines. Emotional neglect refers to a lack of emotional connectedness within the household. Uh, recurrent emotional abuse. This is recurrent um, uh, verbal abuse, basically, being told very critical things, harsh messages. You're not good enough. You can't do anything right. You're stupid. Name-calling things along those lines. Recurrent physical abuse. Sexual abuse that involves contact. Anybody in the household engaged in substance use disorder. Incarceration of somebody in the household. Um, having chronic mental illness within the family environment. Witnessing the mother being treated violently or being raised by one or neither parent. Right? Of these different nine adverse outcomes, what they found is the higher the number of these outcomes that a person, excuse me, the higher the number of these experiences that a person had, the greater the likelihood that they would develop medical or psychiatric disease. It was associated with chemical dependency, chemical dependency and substance use issues. Uh, it had an influence on health-related quality of life, partner violence, sexual activity, and suicidality. So, even though this study is still ongoing, their preliminary findings uh, found support for these different things, that these adverse child experiences do indeed have an impact on later functioning. But as we look at the literature over the course of time, we actually already knew this. Um, Paris did a, a meta-analysis and a, a systematic review of literature spanning about three decades. Um, and they were looking at abuse and somatic disorders. And what they found is a significant association between a history of sexual abuse and a lifetime diagnosis of functional GI disorders, nonspecific chronic pain, non-epileptiform seizures, and chronic pelvic pain. Okay. So again, looking back over the course of time, we're already seeing evidence that supports what the uh, Adverse Childhood Experiences Study is already finding right now. So certainly within chronic pelvic pain, we do see a significant amount of people that have a history of abuse. Um, in a study that was looking at different types of abuse, physical abuse versus sexual abuse, is there a difference in how those play out in a person's experience of pain? Um, uh, authors looked at pain severity, pain disability, and depression, and separated out physical versus sexual abuse. And what they found was the actual abuse category itself was not associated with pain severity, but sexual abuse was associated with pain-related disability. Um, and also both physical and sexual abuse uh, were associated with much higher levels of depression. And I'm not spending a lot of time during today's talk talking about depression, just because I know that it's, it's relatively well known and understood that depression, anxiety, catastrophization, that these factors are strongly associated with pain conditions. Um, in a lecture I'm giving later on tomorrow, we'll spend a little bit more time talking about some of these different constructs, and I want to try to minimize repetition in the different, uh, different talks. Um, but again, we certainly know that these other psychological factors play a significant role in the onset or maintenance of pain. So what can you conclude from this? If you leave here thinking that pelvic pain is always a sign of an underlying abuse history and depression in a person with pelvic pain is more related to their abuse history than pelvic pain, then you missed the point of the lecture, right? So these are absolutely false. But unfortunately, what oftentimes happens is we'll oftentimes hear um, just chatter when we go, go to other clinics and we're talking to other clinicians. We'll hear people say, this person's really crazy. Well, this person's just got depression and this pelvic pain is a manifestation of their depression. It's not really real. It's all psychogenic. And the challenge with that, the problem with that is it's very invalidating for the patient, right? If a person's coming in with pelvic pain, it's a very difficult issue to broach, opposed to coming in to your primary care's office and saying, I've got headaches or I've got low back pain. 
pelvic pain involves a very sensitive part of our body. And so it's difficult to even come in to seek treatment. And Dr. Ha was alluding to the fact that it's oftentimes pretty late uh, before people start to seek treatment. So once a person does that, if they come into the office and the clinicians already got a preformed conclusion that, well, this, this is related to some abuse history. You don't have a history of abuse? Okay, you probably do, but you just don't want to tell me. Then it's really going to set the patient up to be in a bad space, right? So we don't want to make these conclusions. We don't want to jump to these conclusions, uh, but we do want to respect that depression and uh, histories of abuse can influence the outcomes that our patient experiences. Now, we've seen quite a number of people who come through our clinic who never had a history of any kind of psychiatric illness before uh, the onset of their pain condition. And it's easy to understand how uh, depression can start to settle in when a person with the pain condition. Right? Let's say that this square represents your life. Right? You're flying here to Vegas, you're sitting next to somebody in the plane who's a chatterbox, and they ask you about your life. Right? What kinds of things would you talk about when somebody asks you about your life? This is what I do when I see that people are starting to get sleepy. I did this yesterday. I'm doing it today. I start to turn it into an interactive presentation. Okay. Talk about your family. Talk about where you're from. You might talk about work, school, hobbies, leisure activities, right? These are the things that encompass our life, right? This is what gives us quality of life. Well, one day, a pain condition sets in, right? And it's something that's there. It's something new, this acute pain condition. We don't know what it is, so it's kind of got center stage but we still have space for all the things that give us quality of life. Over the course of time, as this pain condition evolves from being an acute issue to something more chronic, we start to get a lot of disturbance from that pain issue, right? Uh, we start to have decreased activity levels. Um, decreased activity levels, less engagement with uh, pleasurable activities, social absenteeism, not going to parties, not going to significant events. Countless numbers of failed treatment modalities, right? When a person has tried all the different procedures, tried a lot of different medications, and they haven't been able to achieve uh, long-term symptom amelioration, sleep disturbances, um, either sleep disturbances related to pain or sleep disturbances related to mood, um, increased number of doctor office visits. You know, we have a number of patients who tell us that the most significant social interaction they have is when they come to our clinic. And I know the people that work in our clinic, and that's a very sad thing that that's their social activity. Um, Interpersonal problems develop. It's understandable that if a person's pulling away from social activities or pulling away from work, uh, that interpersonal issues can start to form. And sexual dysfunction. This is a pretty significant thing because a lot of times patients aren't very comfortable discussing sexual activity with their providers. Also, many clinicians aren't very comfortable discussing sexual activity with their patients. And so this oftentimes becomes an issue that never really fully gets addressed. And so this is one huge aspect of the patient's life where they're suffering in silence, and it significantly drives that depression. So now this pain condition that started off as just a blot in the person's life, it now overshadows everything, and they no longer have space to do the things that give them meaning. And so it's understandable how that type of a process could lead to depression, anxiety, all those different types of things. So what do we do about this? What can we do to try and break this cycle and help a person get their life back? Well, we have to recognize that we need to treat the whole person, not just the issue, not just the side of pain, but we need to look at the entire person. And failing to do so is really going to result in the person not getting better and, even worse, exacerbation of their condition. Right? So the way I like to conceptualize the patients is I say, think about pain as being like a fire. Right? If I take a match and if I light some papers on fire, some papers behind here, right, the fire starts to burn. Right? What's the cause of the fire? interaction thing again, right? 
causes that I lit it with a match, right? But now let's say I start to pour gasoline on the fire. The fire gets bigger, right? What's the cause though? The cause is still because I lit it with the match, but now the fire's getting bigger because of the gasoline, right? Then I take pure oxygen and I blow on the fire. The fire gets bigger yet, right? The cause still remains the same, the, the match, but now the fire's bigger because of these accelerants, because of the gasoline, because of the oxygen. And untreated or undertreated psychiatric distress is like gasoline or oxygen on a fire. It's going to significantly worsen it. It may not be the primary cause of the person's pain condition, right? They may have uh, some sort of nerve damage or one of the things that Dr. Ha referred to, but untreated or undertreated psychiatric distress will significantly exacerbate the condition. And you can imagine if you're trying to fight a fire, this fire that's got you know, the gasoline and oxygen being poured onto it, if you try to reach in there and try to get that match, you get the match and it's extinguished, you're still going to have a raging inferno, right? So we need to make sure that we approach the whole person and look at all the different factors that are contributing to their experience of pain. And the way that we do this most effectively is using an interdisciplinary approach to care. Right? Um, during a talk yesterday, I spent a bit of time talking about the differences between acute and chronic pain. When you're working with somebody with pelvic pain, you want to make sure that you're approaching it from the appropriate modality. Is this more of an acute pain condition, in which case the treatment pathway follows one course, or is this something that's more chronic? And if it's something that falls more in the chronic category, you want to make sure that you take more of a management approach to their pain condition. Right? And in the management approach, what you basically do, you really focus more on all these different biopsychosocial factors that can influence that experience of pain that a person has. And in the management approach, we're not chasing a cure for the pain or complete elimination of the symptoms, but we're trying to focus on improving quality of life, improving a person's overall level of functioning. So this interdisciplinary approach to pain management, what it does is, again, we're not fixing the pain, but trying to help a person learn how they can better live with it, help restore higher levels of activity, um, help them get involved with treatments that don't fix their pain, but help them have better quality of life, eliminate the sleep disturbances, um, cut down on the doctor office visits, decrease the medical utilization, um, help them get plugged into uh, work where they can work through the different interpersonal issues that may have arisen, work through the sexual dysfunction, so that in the end, they still have pain. We haven't cured them of their pain, but we've helped address a lot of the distress that's caused by the pain, which then gives them space for a quality of life again, to do all the things that fill life up. And even though the pain is there, we've decentralized the role of pain in that person's life, and it's no longer the primary focus. So what's the summary? What's the take-home message from this, this brief part of this talk is recognizing that psychological factors, there are times where a person's pain is rooted 100% in psychogenic factors, right? But that's actually a relatively rare occurrence, right? More often than not, what we know is that psychological factors significantly worsen a person's pain condition, right? In the cartoon there, if any of you know my wife, this is basically an image of my wife. It's a lady saying, the pain starts in my husband's lower back, then it travels up his spine to his neck, then it comes out of his mouth and into my ears. That's why I get these headaches. <laughs> and so with that, I will stop giving you guys a headache, and we'll end there and we'll open up for questions.